0: Welcome to Deep North. Today, we're talking with staff writer Ragnar Tomas on his piece, Mad World, a consideration of the state of mental health in Iceland. Mad World. On Friday, November
1: 11th, I attended an appointment with a psychologist in Reykjavik. For weeks leading up to the appointment, my wife had encouraged me to, quote, see someone my moods were vacillating, my fuse was growing increasingly shorter, and I was prone to habitual crashes. I didn't, she observed, seem all that happy, but I pushed back. I was fine, I argued, only that I'd grow exhausted and lose the run of myself from time to time, owing presumably to a confluence of untoward forces. I did admit that something wasn't right, however, and that I might need some help disentangling those forces which would sometimes bring me low. And so I went. It struck me over the past few days, I told the psychologist, that we're in possession of the most complex organ in the universe, the brain, but that it's been paired with this exceptionally rudimentary software, consciousness, by which we are made to gauge the state of the brain and the body. I have these difficult moments, I continued, and I'm left to conjecture by way of a general and vague feeling about causal mechanisms. I point my finger at insufficient sleep, the incessant struggle that comes with being a father of two young boys, stress, a mild addiction to fantasy football, vaping, etc. But for all I know, it could just be a matter of hormonal changes in my body, or something else of which I am completely unaware. She sat and listened as I attempted to make some kind of point, relating also to how the modern world just seemed to offer endless avenues toward addiction and deficiency, prior to pushing back against my notion that we can't know what's going on. I think we're pretty intuitive. I think we have a pretty good idea deep down what's bothering us, she told me. And there are, it seems, a lot of things that are bothering us. Over the past 30 years, Icelanders who receive disability benefits for mental illnesses have outpaced population growth 6 to 1. During the past 10 years, the prescription of antidepressants among Icelandic children has doubled. Between 2006 and 2018, the rate of self-reported daily sadness among 6th, 8th, and 10th graders has increased by 3rd. In 2014, 81% of the eldest group of primary school children in Iceland rated their mental health as good or very good. In 2021, it had declined to 57%. And between 2000 and 2005, 1% of deaths among Icelandic teenagers younger than 18 were by suicide. Over the past five years, that percentage has jumped to 9.2%. Root Causes Grimur Ahlason, director of Gedhjelp, has many theories on why our mental health is declining. Most of them have something to do with our failure to prevent mental health care issues before they arise and our reluctance to look at root causes. In an article in Gedhjelp's latest publication, Grimur argued that 25% of health care issues, at least, some would say 40%, are related to mental health while only 5% of the budget is allocated to the latter item. Running such an underfunded system for decades has consequences, he observed. When our money feels bad, the governor of the central bank steps up and announces that he will raise the interest rate, to slow private consumption, to keep inflation in check. But where is our governor of central health? When suicide rates and opioid overdoses and drug prescriptions are inflated, who steps up and declares, we need to levy a tax on our citizenry to keep our mental health in order. I listened to Grimur, who sounds like someone who's been standing in a thunderstorm and is tired of being wet, railed against consumerism, maintaining that our endless chasing of material goods negatively impacted our mental health. And then there are the smartphones. We're on this dopamine trip, scrolling endlessly, he explained. It activates dopamine receptors in the brain. But doing this over and over again creates a deficit, which isn't normal. The brain revolts. It's thrown out of balance. There's nothing wrong with us other than the fact that we're addicts. And when we don't get what we crave, we become depressed. Grimur continued, Our smartphones affect our attention, our mood, our sleep. Symptoms emerge among our children, and what do we do? We diagnose. We never delve into the causes. And research has shown that we're quite keen on diagnosis in Iceland, I asked. We're world champions when it comes to diagnosis, Grimler interjected. Period. We're world champions when it comes to prescribing antidepressants, period. It's just through the roof. In some cases, you have classrooms where up to 20% of the boys are on ADHD drugs. And these are brain issues. You can't separate mental health from brain health, right? Well, that's the thing. How do you diagnose a mental illness? Well, according to symptoms. We know that something's going on in the brain, of course, but there are hormones and bacteria in the gut that influence mental health as well, blood flow, etc. But you can't take a blood test to assess the quality of your mental health, and that's what makes drugs so problematic. You know what morphine does... But many of these psychotropic drugs are like the allied bombing campaigns that were carried out in the dark in the 1940s. We know there's a bridge there somewhere, so let's just blast it to bits. Personal Responsibility Auszeit Larnersohn is a professor at the University of Eisen's School of Education. He holds degrees in psychology and health sciences, alongside a PhD in biomedical science, and has authored numerous articles on the well-being of children and adolescents. In 2019, Auszeit published a study examining the prevalence of daily sadness among Icelandic adolescents between the years 2006 and 2018. The study showed that rates of self-reported daily sadness had increased by a third, from 5.8% to 7.6%. Recent studies have shown that depression is not caused by a chemical imbalance, Ossetl observed. Despite what the pharmaceutical industry has been pushing for all these years, it's just nonsense. The majority of our mental health problems have to do with our environment, with our circumstances, and with the assistance that we're offered. We can't prescribe away these problems. In his dismissal of the chemical imbalance theory, Arsettl was referring to a recent overview of meta-analyses and systematic reviews, also mentioned in this year's Gedhjelp publication, that concluded that chemical imbalance as the cause of depression was, quote, unlikely. The finding calls into question the efficacy of antidepressants. In an article on the paper in Science Daily, lead author Joanna Moncrief, a professor of psychiatry at UCL, remarked, I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin, which leaves environmental causes. As far as those causes are concerned, Autsatz pointed to some of the primary culprits for daily sadness as enumerated in his research paper. Sleeping difficulties, for example, growing up in a household characterized by low financial security, put participants at the greatest risk for experiencing daily sadness, 25 times more likely. These two risk factors were followed by the feeling that one was overweight, consuming alcohol habitually, being bullied, identifying as transgender, smoking, vaping, being socially isolated, etc. Also, students who admitted to, quote, a moderate screen time were 60% more likely to report daily sadness when compared to those who did not. Outside went on to raise an important point, one which cuts to the core of the difficulty of mental health, personal responsibility. We need to pause for a moment, he remarked. We can reverse these trends... But we must take them seriously. We must take responsibility for our own mental health. These days the inclination is to outsource responsibility, but that responsibility is always ours. Sure, we need help from others, but we need to ask for that help. But these issues, as you mentioned, arise from our circumstances. Smartphones, social media, etc. How do you take responsibility for things that are beyond your control? That's a good point, Outsider replied. You don't tell a single parent on disability to turn to positive psychology. I'm deeply interested in the influences of society on the individual, but I'm still bothered by this notion that social influence trumps everything, that you're given a free pass. There are plenty of people who experience terrible things, but they never seek help. It's not your fault that something terrible happened to you, but you need to take responsibility for it going forward. It's a strange notion that taking responsibility for something somehow means that you're admitting that it's your fault. Burnout. A point against the argument that individuals must shoulder greater responsibility for their mental health was made, however unwittingly, by psychologist Steinen Anna Seuronstotter. Despite being in a unique position to quote take responsibility for mental health, that position seemed only to exacerbate and prolong troubling circumstances. One of the founders of Lichtla Kviza the Little Anxiety Center, Steinen apologized for her late reply to my request for an interview by explaining that she had been on sick leave. I went on this massive burnout, she told me over the phone, while rather frantically it seemed packing for a trip to North Iceland. That strikes me as somehow surprising, I observed, that a psychologist who you'd think would be uniquely equipped to prevent such a thing is experiencing burnout. Well, they say the healthcare profession attracts a certain type of person, Stan and Reasoned, one who's especially conscientious and diligent, which, by the way, also applies to their personal lives. And so I think that being a psychologist meant that I coped for much longer than I otherwise should. It's like women my age are destined to suffer burnouts. Yes, we're probably the first generation to receive domestic help from men, but we've not, unlike the generation that followed, been sufficiently conscious of what is often referred to as the third shift, i.e. the mental load often disproportionately allocated to women which comes with managing a household. I mean those extra-cognitive tasks. Who's going to apply for child subsidies for municipalities, for example? Book music lessons, handle reading difficulties, or buy winter clothes? It's not just about cooking and cleaning, Steynard added. And then there are also other risk factors unique to women. In a nationwide study on the impact of trauma on women's health, for example, researchers put an extensive web-based questionnaire to Icelandic women 18 years or older, between February 2018 and June 2019. The researchers found that 14% of women had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, 40% had suffered physical or sexual violence, and 32% had been harassed at work. As far as overall mental health was concerned, Stannon agreed that anxiety and depression were certainly on the rise, especially among children and young people. She made some of the points that Grimur and Arsalt had made, mentioning the importance of sleep, the fact that mental health is now discussed more openly, while also noting a lack of quality connection between children and their loved ones. I've recently read What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. In the book, Perry makes the point that our nervous system evolved to cope with a 300-person village. Our nervous system always perks up when we see strangers, she adds, which may serve to explain why we're exhausted when leaving airports or other people-filled places. The system is always on. The modern world is filled with noise and stimulation. And then, once again, the smartphones. All these notifications. I was wearing a heart monitor the other day, and every time that I began to discuss work, the lines shot up. The same thing happened when I received a notification on my phone. It's these minor forms of stimulation that build up over time. It's not good in the long run. Stainan clarified that she hadn't reviewed the literature recently, although she was relatively certain that clinical anxiety disorders were not on the rise, but that anxiety, stress, and feelings of distress were increasing along more general lines. "'It's so many things,' she concluded. "'When I was bored in high school,' I didn't have access to what the prettiest girl in 10th grade was doing. We've got such access to perfection these days. We should all be going to the gym, buying Gucci belts, working harder, and earning more. When my mother had an hour off from work during lunch, she just went home and took it easy. Creating stable environments. In 2020, Inkybjörg Eva Thoristotir holds a Ph.D. in psychology and is employed as the chief analytics and advisory officer at Planet Youth, published results from a project examining risk factors for anxiety and depression among adolescents. She and her collaborators concluded that symptoms of anxiety and depression had increased for adolescents and that the relationship between time spent on social media and symptoms of depressed mood grew stronger over time. It's important to note that our research is based on the self-assessment of adolescents, she explained. We're not saying that they meet the criteria for mental illness. A person can struggle with mental disorders, but their overall mental health can be good. Likewise, a person can be free of mental illness, but their mental health can be poor. I told Ingeborg that I'd spoken to a number of experts, and that they all seemed to agree that our collective mental health— especially as it concerns children and young people, was declining. Yes, that's certainly what the data suggest, Ingebirk replied, both in terms of self-reports, long waiting lists, and how busy the child and teenage psychiatric wards have been. But why? We begin to see changes in anxiety levels among girls in 2013 and 2014, which coincides with the time that social media was becoming more popular. Research indicates that there's an association, but it depends on how you're using these media. There's a stronger association between poor mental health and passive use, but if you're an active user, using social media to connect to friends, for example, well, that's different. One of the reasons social media use among the youth is problematic is the complex changes that occur during puberty, both in terms of the brain and social relationships. Being a consumer of social media at a time when your identity is developing, when you're making friends, and when the fear of missing out is the strongest, that's risky, Inge explained. This social comparison is complex because you're not just comparing yourself to those closest to you, but to people worldwide, to glossy images that don't reflect reality. Then there are also strong external factors. Sleep, for example. Those who sleep better report better mental health. And we were sleeping two or three more hours a night a hundred years ago compared to today. I read somewhere. I don't know about a hundred years ago, ingeborg replied, but we know that sleep is a pillar of well-being. So even if social media plays a part in deteriorating mental health, we need to look at other factors. Physical exercise, nutrition, social connection, and sleep are important for mental well-being. Ingeberg went on to enumerate other factors that could also be playing a role. How children have grown more conscious of the world around them, for example, more attuned to climate change, war, the pandemic, etc., while also mentioning anecdotal evidence of increased violence among youth, a lack of tolerance, understanding, and respect, and bullying. And these are political problems. If children are becoming more violent and are unable to show tolerance and understanding, It's not something that we can blame on the children. Exactly, it's our responsibility to create an environment that safeguards our children. Some children are engaging in extreme behaviors, although the majority are not. Mental health is about balance. It's about being able to respond to daily challenges. It's normal to feel down, but if that feeling is prolonged, it may cause difficulties in daily life. So what's to be done? There are plenty of things that we can do. First and foremost, help our children balance sleep, nutrition, and physical activity. Provide a safe and stable environment, free from violence and bullying. We must also improve access to our health care system for those who need assistance. The youth cannot wait, and we need to eliminate waiting lists or provide alternative resources while the individuals are on waiting lists. These are issues that need to be dealt with immediately, or else they become bigger and more difficult over time both for the individual and the society as a whole. We can create a one-door system where the individual comes knocking and the system leads the person along the appropriate path. Back on the couch. Having completed a few self-assessment forms, my psychologist concluded that my intuition, namely that I was not suffering from anxiety or depression, was most likely accurate. My habitual crashes were to be primarily chalked up to stress. I needed to strike a balance, she said, to learn to detect the early warning signs and to take a break from time to time, to get out of my own head. There are many variables that impact our mental health, most of which, when taken in isolation, are not sufficient to lead to symptoms of anxiety and depression, let alone clinical disorders, but it's the confluence of those variables that spell trouble. It's hard enough for an adult to engineer the kind of environment that's conducive to good mental health over and against the persuasive forces that enter into our lives through the interest of social media platforms, manufacturers of addictive substances, influencers, misguided politicians, etc. But it's nothing short of supreme folly to expect such engineering from children and adolescents.
0: Thank you for that, Ragnar. So clearly, the solution uh, for mental health, if one can talk about that, is pretty universal. You know, we all need to be exercising more, eating better, spending more time with friends and family, sleeping more. All of these things. Um, if the solution is universal, you know what? What's kind of particular about? Some of these problems to Iceland, like what kind of maybe gives mental health its particular contours and problems here. Well,
1: I think, I, I think if I'm, I'm not, I'm not overstating it when I say that Iceland and sort of the mental health trajectory of the Icelandic youth and adolescents is following a very similar trajectory to other places in the world. Um, I think having briefly looked into the numbers in the U.S., for example, um, I mean, all of the key indicators are on the decline as far as sort of general anxiety and depression is concerned. And I think it's very hard to tease out sort of the Icelandic elements. But I think as Karim Uraslason Who's the director of Get Help, uh Noted in the interview is that, I mean, one of the things that we're doing, which is probably what a lot of other societies is doing, is are doing is is that we're prescribing a lot of antidepressants, psychotropic drugs, um, and as he contended in the article, is that that we're actually, you know, world champions. Per capita, of <laughs> course, when it comes to prescription uh, drugs. So, I mean, my feeling is that sort of, I mean, what all of these people whom, with whom I spoke mentioned was was that, you know, it has a lot to do with smartphones and modern technology and sort of the diffusion of our attention and how that undermines sort of real world connection which is something that probably, you know, the, the whole world is going through. It's this vast psychological experiment that we're conducting, um, and I think it, it's very hard to talk about maybe the particulars of Iceland um, without going into sort of speculation or conjecture.
0: Uh, you mentioned earlier that there is maybe some dis- that there had been a lot of progress made about reducing. Um some problematic behaviors such as uh, like drinking and vaping uh, among teenagers in Iceland um, and that there had been some success in that field and that maybe some of these methods uh, were going to be kind of applied to the mental health problem, I guess we can say. Uh, Can you maybe just briefly talk about, uh, you know, what's been done, uh, what's left to do in that regard?
1: Yeah, so we've um, made tremendous progress when it comes to lowering the consumption of alcohol and and drugs and tobacco among Icelandic uh, teenagers and young people. And just looking at the statistics, 20 years ago, um, the landscape has completely changed. And one of the people I spoke to for the article was Inki Birkeva, who's working for an organization called Planet Youth. And, And one of the things that she's trying to do is sort of adapt the model that we use to lower the consumption of alcohol and tobacco among young people to this problem of mental health. And it's actually one of the things that did make it into the article. Um, but as she mentioned, I mean, the, the sort of, the suite of, of, um, I, I guess you could say, well, what, what, what she's what was so successful about that model was that, you know, it was like this multi pronged effort involving all these various variables of like, well, we're going to, you know, we're gonna use prevention, we're gonna teach prevention, we're gonna we're gonna sort of activate and motivate these different communities that and these people who, who interact with our young people. Um so I mean it's it's definitely an interesting approach and probably a very necessary one given the the numbers and the data so that's something that as as is quite clear in the piece that you know this is the problem of mental health is not you know for my own parts is not something that even though individuals can do a lot that it's largely a, a political and a, a policy problem
0: it's also maybe very difficult to talk about this um when kind of like the second we leave the world of statistics um and sometimes it can be a little bit just impressionistic and we you know maybe just talk about these things with anecdotes uh as evidence um you know but nevertheless uh one does have one's impressions and You know, I mean, maybe something that I perceive, and you can kind of tell me if this is fair or not, um, is maybe a particular dimension to mental health in Iceland is, um, you know, I mean, obviously, Icelandic society is changing a lot, and it is a very modern country demographically in a lot of ways, Um, and yet uh, it is still a small community in a lot of ways, and I think that that does put a kind of much higher pressure to conform maybe on young people. Um, And, you know, I mean, obviously to some extent we're all kind of living in this world of images in social media. And, you know, like we kind of have this feed of what our life is supposed to look like, kind of fed to us all the time through social media and all these things. Um, And yet, I do feel like this may be kind of image of the perfect glamorous world. And there's some sort of also connection there with like the tourism industry and social media. I do feel like that is somehow particularly strong and present in Iceland are just, you know, these beautiful images, whether it's of the landscape or just, you know, pretty people. Um, that, that's, that's somehow, especially in your face here. And, you know, I mean, growing up as a teenager around some of these things, um, I imagine, cannot be easy. You know, is that kind of fair from your perspective?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I grew up um, straddling the Atlantic with one foot in and, and America and one foot in Iceland. So I, I kind of, I have an experience growing up as a teenager in in both the States and Iceland. And I I, I understand what you're saying, but from my perspective, I mean, sure, the particulars may be, Um, a little different, but I think sort of the tendency to conform and, you know, all the fads that I recall from my own time as a teenager, they were very sort of present in both of the societies. And I would actually say that one of the um, sort of what Iceland has got going for it in terms of mental health, traditionally speaking, is that it is – We are a small community, and it's um, the distances between people are relatively short. So for me, one of the things that I felt growing up in Florida, and and Florida, I guess you would agree, is sort of the capital of batshit crazy when it comes to the universe, (laughs) is because...
0: Yes, it does have that record.
1: (laughs) Which is also very sad and tragic. But one of the things that I, I felt when I was growing up there was that people didn't have close family around. It was not common for anyone to go visiting their grandma or their cousin's house or, you know, Sunday dinners at their aunts. Um, People just didn't have that kind of, that sort of support network. Everybody was, you know, their their relatives were living in other states and and then you were growing up in these very isolated, gated communities where you had to drive to get anywhere. Um, and, And so for me, Iceland, that was one of the things that it has going for it is that you're always embedded in this very sort of dense network of people and um which is why, as people have noted, maybe we've been so quick to adopt progressive values when it comes to matters of l b g q t plus um or anything because you know if if there's someone who's sort of maybe different from from someone else that person will likely be within your own familial or social network and you're going to be forced to interact with them. And, and one of the things that I found especially interesting during the research of this article was that a lot of people mentioned that, yes, that's what we have going for it. We have these intergenerational homes where we're interacting with older people. Um, we're getting a sort of broader take on, on life. But today, on account of social media, and again, this is anecdotal evidence, but a lot of the people with whom I spoke mentioned this, was that, you know, yes, you're going to your grandmother's or your aunt's house, but instead of having these sort of interactions, connecting deeply, having conversations, you know, you're sitting on the sofa on your phone, and you're not interacting, you're not maybe getting that level of engagement or depth or meaningful conversation that you used to. And it was interesting speaking to... One of the psychologists who runs um, Steinen, who has this um, center for, for teenagers and young people, the Little Anxiety Center, was that she said, yeah, people in Iceland, the young people are, you know, they're much more conscious of these issues of mental health, but they're so much sort of less capable of discussing these issues with people, older people, with parents, aunts. Mm. It, um, because they're just not used to having those kind of conversations. Um, mm. So I guess that's a sort of counterpoint to your point, but I get what you're saying.
0: Another uh, field um, in which Iceland has made a lot of progress um, is, of course, gender equality. Yeah. Um you know, Iceland very much has a kind of international reputation for being one of the most equitable places in the world in that regard. Um, and yet one of the other things that you do gesture towards in your piece um, are maybe some gains that are yet to be made um, in you know what's been called, I guess, the third shift. Um, and, you know, I mean, to me, I guess this is also just an interesting problem because... Uh, it really kind of highlights the way in which um, these very personal things like mental health and also just larger policy things uh, collide and how you can never really extricate these problems from each other because, you know, stress and anxiety and, you know, these kind of maybe excessive burdens that are put on women um, in kind of their role in the third shift you know, like like this very much has to do with, um, I mean, just like very practical things like the working week and, uh, you know, how much paid time off are we getting and salary and all of these things, um, you know. So maybe I'm asking, uh, you know, what is there left to be done uh, in terms of kind of leveling the field in mental health um, from a kind of gender perspective?
1: Yeah, that's this is one of the things that Stenan um Anna put her finger on was that uh her generation of women, um, you know, although probably it was the first generation to receive any kind of domestic help for men, that her generation wasn't as conscious of what we in Iceland refer to as the third shift, which is sort of this extra cognitive load that comes with running a household. So yes, um the men are stepping in to cook and clean and, you know, do the dishes and help get the kids ready for school and all of these things. But what's often overlooked is like, you know, these sort of smaller aspects that are somehow less sort of, I I guess, noticed and, and, you know, almost thankless tasks, which also require a lot of, Cognitive bandwidth of like okay yeah um,
0: who is doing all of the evening emailing
1: yes who's thinking about well okay the, his shoes are, are are small now and I, we've got to make sure that we're buying the size up and who, who's applying for municipal subsidies for this or that and and as a parent myself I I think even though I fancy myself belonging to that sort of later, more enlightened generation, I think I'm just as guilty of that as anyone else, of like, well, I'm cooking and I'm cleaning and I'm doing this, but when it comes to these sort of details, um, some most of that largely falls on my wife. Um, and I think that just cuts to sort of the larger matter at hand, is that, like she mentioned, is that, you know, people... Are, You know, our parents, when they got an hour off at lunch, you know, they'd go home and maybe have some lunch and watch some TV or just kick back. But now uh, there's so much stuff in the world and and there's so many things that need to be done and the expectations are just through the roof. So, I mean, obviously that that puts a a burden on our mental health with um, just the complexity of the world.
0: Yeah. Um you know, I mean I think that I heard someone say once, uh that anxiety today is rather like blood pressure. Yeah. We all have it. It's just this thing uh that we have to kind of manage. Um and it's not a matter of, you know, having none of it. Um, you know, like it's just this level that we always have. Um And so, yeah, I mean, this is a very universal problem. And, you know, I mean, maybe just my final question is, um, you know, I mean, what kind of drew you to this like right now? I mean, like, like obviously uh, mental health, anxiety, um, you know, it's very much in the discourse. We're all kind of thinking and talking about it all the time. But, you know, like, like, was there like a particular moment or story that kind of drew you to this right now?
1: I mean, I think just the ubiquity of it, the sheer ubiquity and this sense of, like, technology is making us miserable, and me and Greta, the editor, discussed, well, is that true? Is there data to back that up? Are the smartphones and social media, is that really having a, a negative impact, or is there something else going on? And I, I think speaking from the experts, especially Inky Inkyberg, who's done maybe most of the work, um, specifically geared toward social media and smartphones will agree and does agree that like she mentioned in the piece that the anxiety levels, anxiety levels for young girls begin to sort of shoot up around the same time that social media is becoming more popular. And obviously just from your own experience, you feel that this can't be good. With yeah, I, mean,
0: <laughs> I think that this is a thought that all of us have had. And, you know, on the one hand, you can't just be conservative towards technology and just totally reject it because technology only moves forward and it's just up to us in some sense to find a way to live with it. And yet, I think that we all feel when we're using our phones that they're bad for us. And like we do feel it on this really deep level, actually, Um, and is increasingly swallowing more devices and it's, you know, your alarm clock and it's the first thing you look at in the morning and it's your music player and blah, 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 blah. Um, and you know, like there is this way in which they just make us feel bad and yet we have to use them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to, uh, (laughs) to, um, I mean, listen to what's going on in the States, for example, where, you know, the, the sort of popular way of talking about social media now and where we stand as far as the politics are concerned is, is um, well, comparing it to how the attorneys general took on the tobacco industry in the 80s and 90s, you know, that, well, we're wising up to the fact that maybe the architecture or what what what's being done at a sort of programming level isn't, Especially built into it isn't, you know, some kind of question of, well, is this good for society or the individuals that are using these devices, when actually, as has been pretty well documented, the goal is to keep users engaged at all costs for the sake of advertising. I mean, I think
0: that cigarette is actually just the perfect metaphor. Um, You know, I mean, just the way that Twitter is designed, where... Uh, you know, I mean, maybe you're like in a cab and like within four minutes, uh, you can read a bunch of dumb stuff uh, and, you know, shoot off a couple of tweets. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's important with like the kind of time span of it, because it's this thing that just kind of falls in between all these other tasks throughout the day. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it becomes very habitual and reflexive. Yep. Um, so, you know, I mean, maybe it's kind of a strange metaphor, but I mean, <laughs> I think it's actually rather apt.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and it's scary when it comes to our children. Um, I end the piece on a note of like, for me, as someone who's 36 years old, uh, fairly well educated and relatively disciplined in my own life, I mean, I, I find that I'm completely powerless against these forces. And to expect that a young person or a teenager should be able to exercise the same level of discipline is absolutely insane. And we are responsible.
0: So finally, you know, this is uh, obviously a very broad uh, thing to talk about. Um, you know, but I mean, I guess just one question that I'm left with is, what is mental health? I mean, um, you know, maybe that sounds a little bit funny to ask, uh, but you know, is it merely uh, just? being absent of mental illness? Is it a kind of state of lacking problems? Um, Is it, you know, being successful and earning money and all of these things? Is it, you know, being uh, the image of what we think we're supposed to be? Um, Yeah,
1: so that's um, the first question that I attempted to answer when delving into this topic, um, being a fan of philosophy. It's important to get your terms straight uh, before you begin. And one of the things that I found was that mental health is actually a quite elusive concept and that definitions vary. And um, the first thing to be said about mental health is no, it's not the mere absence of mental disorders. It's so much more than that. But what you find with all of these sort of definitions from these very venerable institutions is that, you know, it, each definition will go something along the lines of well, mental health is not merely the absence of mental health disorders, or mental disorders, but it has to do with how we adjust to society, tackle daily challenges. And then the list just essentially goes on forever. Um, and so one of the things that I sort of wrote down when I was beginning was that, um, Maybe one way to think about mental health is to think of is, is to define it as sort of the perceived quality of our conscious experience, which is a very broad way to put it, but also useful in the way that I mean, there are a lot of ways that our conscious experience can go awry. There are so many things, especially today, given the complexity of the world, um, so many avenues that our minds can take that can lead us into these pitfalls. And and as I mentioned in the piece, um, you know, like most other people, I've been struggling with a fair amount of stress, um, which has led to some rather habitual crashes. And I, I think for me, one of the epiphanies of the piece was like, well, yeah, 100 years ago, um, some of the things that are bothering me could not have bothered me because they didn't exist. Um, You know, I I probably would not have been the kind of person to smoke cigarettes in the 50s. I don't know. But today we have vaping, which is like, oh, it seems slightly less harmful. And I don't know. The the data isn't there to back that up. But somehow that's something that I can just sort of like hang my hat on and go, yeah, that that seems reasonable. And, And just the list goes on with like these... Possible. I mean, these things that sort of draw us in. Whatever your poison is, it's there somewhere, waiting for you to sort of flirt with it. Um, so, yeah. Basically speaking, that's that's the definition that I settled upon. The perceived quality of our conscious experience, and <laughs> there's a lot of ways that that can go wrong.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for that, Ragnar. Thank you, Eric. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.